Welcome everybody to episode 76 of the Enneagram Journey Podcast. This is the Joelster. It's a nickname that my son gave me recently. Not nearly as cool as the Enneagram Godmother that Suzanne has, but you work with what you've got. Brad and Noel Otts drove and joined Suzanne in the Micah Center to discuss their marriage and relationship and family as Brad, an Enneagram 7, and Noel, a 4. And the first half of this episode, they talk about how to better argue in their relationship and did a really good job of breaking down the disconnect of the head and the heart. Suzanne tells two stories in this episode. One, I can't vouch for. Allegedly, there was a bell that anyone could ring when things got out of control. Maybe this is one of those instances of a seven rewriting their memories. I don't know. And then the other one is a little bit embarrassing of uh, me trying to jump off the house at a young age. Just remember when you listen, I was very young. The second half of the podcast, Brad and Noel uh, are very vulnerable and very giving in sharing about their family, all the struggles that they've gone through with having an international adoption, with having three kids, a failed match, and how they navigated through all of that. They wrap that up with some tools and advice for parents who are going through a tough season. I guess the corny way of putting it is the first part, we get to know them, and then the second part, we really love them. If you live in Nashville, which is, I mean, like the second home of the Enneagram, it seems like everyone's either doing Enneagram work or singing or doing both. We're coming your way at the end of February. Be sure to sign up for that. Then we're coming to Austin. If you can't go to either one of those and you're in the Dallas area, March 21st, Billy Shuey is teaching an all-day Saturday Know Your Number workshop. It's going to be great, and it'll get you ready for boot camp, which is going to be June 11th through the 14th and August 6th through the 9th. If you can't make an all-day workshop, Suzanne is going to be teaching an introduction to the Enneagram on March 30th and 31st in Dallas. You can find all of these events and the information and registration for them at life in the trinity ministry.com now i'll get out of the way and let's get to today's podcast it was stress and security in relationships was it the stress and security one Mm -hmm. it was in november of 2018 okay and now y'all are my friends i mean my friends okay my friends too um i'm gonna use well i had reached out to you yeah and had um Sweating kind of told a little bit of our story, but also had also said complexly in relationships, but between fours and sevens. Yeah. And I need help. The fours that are in my life require the utmost of my intentionality. If I were to just be average Joel, average seven, and what what are the descriptors you say for our personality? Uh, habitual, predictable, predictable, mechanical, mechanical behavior, behavior, all that. My relationships with fours would be trash. <laughs> My uh, interest before I knew you, what kind of intrigued me was that a male seven was asking for help with a female four instead of a female four asking for help with a male seven. So the, there's a lot going on here that's good 
and worth my time. And so, Noel, as a four, let's start with one thing that is really challenging for you about Brad, and then as a seven, mm-hmm. and then Brad, I'm going to flip that, and you'll get your turn. One thing, okay. Just one. Just one. <laughs> Just one. Just one. I think it's the um, that he processes things at lightning speed. And it wasn't until recently that we figured that out and that dynamic within our relationship. But that has probably been one of the most challenging things in our 15 years together that we just figured out. And it felt like this big mystery. Like, why is there this massive disconnect? And I would always label it like, we don't know how to argue. We mm-hmm. are, are in a, you are very good at arguing and I'm very good at retreating into the corner. Right. Um, and then we figured out that it was that he was 10 steps ahead of me mm-hmm. and I would still be focusing on like the very first thing he said. I was like, wait, I'm all the way back here on the reason you're upset and you are already at the end of the conversation. Right. And I wasn't there and I was not a participant in that. No. Right. And, and I think, I think this, uh, about fours and sevens and some other numbers too, but I particularly think about fours and sevens that when sevens are thinking fast in an intimate relationship, what's happening is that they process to the end and nobody's with them and they think they won. But to me, it was like he did win every time. Right. And I... I think that's because you're a four. Mm -hmm. To me, when I walk away as a two, it's you think you won, but you didn't, Mm -hmm. which is really problematic, too, because then I take that with me for next time. And then as a two, what I do with aggressive numbers when they think they've won is I chain it to all the other times they thought they'd won, right? So it's really... That gets to be really problematic. And I I think we did this with our children for a while. We didn't do it for very long, maybe six months. And we were um, six people living in a parsonage that was too small for us. And, and we just had a bell on the coffee table. And when things got like out of hand for everybody, the children had permission to just go ring the bell. And then everything just had to stop for a bit. And then Joe and I started ringing the bell, and then everything had to stop. And I think if you could visually think about when when aggressive numbers, Noel, this is just you and me talking because we're here with aggressive numbers, but when aggressive numbers get so far ahead of us, I think we have to imagine that there's a bell we can ring where we say, no, I, I'm back here, and so, you know, go run a mile, um, go do something, And we'll talk about this again later. Yeah. My thinking error was compounded over a long period of time was my feelings don't matter. Right. And what I have to say in this situation doesn't matter. And I actually remember this one, (laughs) we can laugh about it now, this one argument we had and I had it like I, and very rarely do I get explosive. We joke that maybe I do that once every 
five, 10 years. And I said, um, I walked into the room and I said, you need to check your, your heart because you're really hurting me. And then I walked out the door and walked down the street. And to me, that was the most dramatic thing I ever did. And while I'm walking down the street, I'm looking over my shoulder, like surely he's going to come That's after right. me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you didn't. <laughs> I should have. I know, but we laugh. We but can laugh about it now. This is yeah. not, this is not yeah, like well, a harbored thing, but. First time I told Joe that uh, he should go sleep on the couch, he said, I'm good here. If you're not, you go to the couch. I thought this is the last time I'm doing this. That didn't work. Right? Yeah. Like that yeah. didn't work. But it, in our defense, as a four and a two, I think what we're looking for is just a little time out mm-hmm. to think because we actually know we're losing every point because we're feeling and not thinking. Yeah. And I think a broader understanding of life as life presents itself to young couples, is that later on you find out that the, the things you thought you won, really there's a lot there that you lost. You just thought you won. So that's, that's your intro, Brad. <laughs> so the one thing about being challenging with a, a four, um, so it's kind of the inverse of that, is that I... Um, because I'm so fast processing, it causes a lot of like, I don't know if this will make sense, but it causes a lot of suspicion to people who aren't fast processing. So it's almost like I become a, uh, like a, a paranoid, uh, conspiracy theorist. Um, but it's like in a relational conspiracy theorist. So I, the challenging thing was until I really understood her is that I would always think that she was being passive aggressive. Mm. Um, and so I would take things from past relationships, whether it's like with one of my parents or any other relationship. And I would say, because I could think so fast and I could think, Oh, this is what you you could be thinking. Not necessarily that you are thinking. Mm -hmm. I would think that, Oh, this is what you're probably thinking because you could think that then you probably are. And I don't see how you can't see this. Like, mm-hmm. how is it possible that you're not seeing this? And so then I would just think that she was being manipulative. Yep. And that was, and because I'm so aggressive and so direct, I'd be, she, I'd always say that, like, listen, I'm not passive aggressive. I'm just aggressive. And so the idea of like, I'm just going to tell you how I feel or what I'm thinking or any of those things. And so when something or someone doesn't put that thing out there, or I perceive that they're not putting it out there and they're withholding that. Um, which they might be for their own, you know, protection, reasons. Protect, protection or any other reason, perhaps it's unconscious or subconscious. I don't know. That was like the hardest thing or like perceivably was the hardest thing. And I know now just, you know, she wasn't doing that. She was just, it was either subconscious or unconscious or I was just, you know, being a jerk. <laughs> so. I, I think I know exactly what you're talking about. We were talking earlier today about processing other people's feelings. And I know what you mean about thinking through both sides of the conversation. In my experience, when I'm having a fight or an argument or difficulty and the other person is sharing their feelings, feelings can't be deciphered with thinking. And that's what we do. 
And so when I do that to Whitney and she shares feelings and I say, then I apply thinking to her feelings. It usually is. Then I'm accusing her of something. And she's like, that's not what I meant, meant at all. And I, and I know that's not what she meant, but in the moment I'm applying logic to feelings and feelings most of the time are not logical. Of course it doesn't make sense. Um, I, I think that you guys are, are, uh, as sevens and young doing good work, looking at yourself and figuring out relationships and all of that. What I want to add is the part that you're getting right that I don't want you to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And actually, the gift for me and for Whitney, I don't know about you, Noel, because you're not in the dependent stance, but the gift for Whitney and me as a one and a two is that we're not thinking. And when you aren't thinking at all, feelings just get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more illogical. So you have both, you know that you both have something to offer that could be helpful. So it's the delivery system that's the problem. And I would suggest that the best way to manage a disconnect, I'm not even going to call it tension, though it usually involves that. The best way to manage a disconnect is with asking questions, not with making statements. And when we know the Enneagram, and we know it well, and we know that our partners know it, and we all know what we're talking about, the best question you can start with every time is about their repressed center. So the best question for you two as sevens from anybody else in a disconnect is, what are you feeling? What you sort of said, Noel, you just said it in a disconnect, you know, in a underhand where is your heart the equivalent yeah. of what are you feeling yeah there, there we could work on the delivery just a little but what i need to hear from joe when i'm a mess has to do with what are you thinking and what i need to hear from joel and from laura when we're on the road and things are crazy and hard i need them to say what are you thinking? What do you think we should do? What do you think is the right, the next step? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And so I think that's an intuitive thing of, Noel, you saying to Brad, where's your heart? And for you guys to think you know what we're thinking because you intuitively know that we aren't, right? So I don't think you're trying to figure out what we're thinking. I think you're thinking for us. And there was silence in the room. I'm There's not. so much thinking going on that that makes total sense. Like I haven't, you made the reference earlier about the bell. And I tell this to my therapist all the time is that like, there's so much thinking going on. I I have too much. And so probably unconsciously, um, I'm perhaps it's coming out in thinking for others because it's too much for myself because I'm not, because my feelings are repressed. I, there's just, there's just too much thinking. It's got to go somewhere. So I'm like, I'm just going to throw it on you and I'm going to assume that I know what you're thinking versus feeling what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it feels like as a person who's still learning how to do that better, that the more I feel, the more like I know that the, the softer I become. Sure. So let's don't miss this opportunity to say 
that when you bring up your repressed center, that's the purest part of you. So what happens when threes, sevens, and eights do share feelings in an intimate relationship? It's breathtaking. It, it's unexpected, and it's so trustworthy, and it's breathtaking because it's the purest part of you. Yeah, but I think where we, where we have learned to really connect in that space is, you know, I can say, hey, I need you to slow down. And we need to back up. And he's like, okay. And he, you're really receptive to that. And then I make a concerted effort with his help to get into my headspace. Mm -hmm. And so then when I'm using my thoughts and thinking and work hard, I don't want to repress who I am. Like I don't want to take away the emotional side. But when I really try to get up into my head, like that that connection where he is in his heart and I am in my head, we kind of like flip flop and it's a lot of work. That is, I think where we generally see the most like healing if we're having a disagreement argument or, or anything where we're just not seeing eye to eye is when we can stop, slow down. He gets into his emotions and I work really hard to get in my head. As you know, stance work is, uh, Man, I, I think it is the heart of the Enneagram, and I, I, I think it's undervalued and has been. Hurley and Dobson said that the greatest opportunity for avoiding excess in your number is balance in your three centers of intelligence. And I think disconnects always include excess in somebody, somebody's in excess in their number when you love somebody and there's a big disconnect. And I think everybody wants to be healthier inside themselves and in relationship. And I also think stances are what sets a table for that. And how in the world are people going to know that they're thinking repressed or feeling repressed or doing repressed. I've never met a single person who came up to me after an event and said, "You thank you so much because I knew I was thinking repressed. <laughs> or, man, I knew I was doing repressed. I've always known it, but nobody ever said it. <laughs> and, you know, certainly three sevens and eights don't come up to me and say, man, I knew I was feeling repressed. So that, that helps me so much that you brought that up. It's because before this step of work, it's about other people. People come and say, I knew so-and-so was feeling repressed. Right. I knew, but it's not self-reflective. That's right. The whole step one through step 1000 is the self-observation. That's right. And self-observation is, in me, was lacking before starting this work. Well, and you can't, you can't change what you can't name. And I think life is full of people who are willing to do anything to be better at being themselves if they just had the tools to do it. And the assumption that we're born with all the tools we need to do life makes me crazy. The, the reality that I was taught algebra and not relationships in high school makes me crazy. Preach. Right? Yes. It's like, I, I, 
I just think we've missed an opportunity to name things in ourselves that don't come with shame or guilt that it just have to do with, you need to do a little work on this. Um, it's, it's very problematic for me. I don't, I don't love it. A question you guys asked me. Fours and sevens are so similar at an early age. You know my teaching is you can't tell them apart. Why and how do fours and sevens change when they're older? Because you guys, I think, as a couple are very clear that you don't look just alike and you're not the same, right? So here's how I think you're the same as children. And here's where I think the differentiation begins. Both fours and sevens never have enough. Mm. So as children, you both always want more. You are both uh, relentless in somebody else understanding what it is you want and that you want it now. For young, I think it's true all through life, but for young fours and sevens, Life is never enough, and it's a big disappointment. And you manage your uh, emotions poorly because they're extreme. And so you, as children, are both sometimes angry that life's not enough, sometimes very sad that life's not enough. It's like there's just, there has to be more. And I think where the differentiation comes is when you get old enough to recognize that you each bear pain in a different way. Mm. And I think by the time kids get into first and second and third grade, life uh, shifts from just being pouting about not getting what you want to trying to either manipulate to get what you want or understand why you can't have it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the age where the differentiation starts to show itself. So which does which? Which, which number does, has right. which response? Mm-hmm. I think uh, because fours can bear witness to pain, that means they can bear witness to their own pain too. And so I think what happens is... Um, fours stay in longing, but by third grade, sevens know how to reframe everything. And so while fours are left longing, sevens are reframing, reframing, reframing. And it's so lovely, I suppose, for you all to be able to move into your head as sevens and turn an ordinary day into Disneyland. Like, I, I will never forget, and we tease about this a lot, so Joel, I'm teaching now, I'm not teasing. I'll never forget Joel, as a third grader, coming to me, having torn up the sheets on his, his sheet for his bed and picked up two boards and tied the boards to his arms, and he honestly believed that he's going to, climb on top of the house and fly off. And what happened 
when he tried off of just a couple of steps and it didn't work, he thought he just wasn't high enough. So he reframed it to this is not failure. I'm just not high enough. And, and it's like, I'm just not quite in the place to fly. And if we use that a metaphor as a metaphor for sevens, it's always, if I just get over there, I can fly. If, I, if I'm just a little farther down there, I can fly. And what fascinated me that day is when he fell, the big fall, he, he didn't deal with, oh, no, I can't fly. That never came through. It was immediately, I'll fly next time. I'll figure it out, and I'll fly next time. Or there was something wrong with those boards. bigger threat count was the issue. <laughs> <laughs> that seems, that's, yeah. uh, that's what I was thinking the whole yeah. time. So, so the whole point is, and, and we, Noel and I, even though we're different numbers, would have thought, Oh, this is so disappointing because I'm never going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. That is a completely different thing when you're trying to work out relationships. If you look at it that way and one person is thinking, we can fly. And the other person is thinking, not till we address this and do this and change this and pay off all our debt and get the kids out of diapers. And, you know, no, we can't fly. And I think that's such a burden for sevens. And I don't think we, even I don't think that I deal even handedly to sevens in disconnect. I always feel like they're the ones who are disconnecting and the other person holds all the answers do y'all feel that from people like do you feel like you sort of underhandedly get the blame every time i typically get the blame when the blame should be on me (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. And, and yeah. then it's coming my way. I've I deserved it for something before. <laughs> I think I've gotten away with some stuff. I'll, I'll take the blame on this one. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> I've probably gotten away with a lot of yeah. other things. I, I do think it's pretty interesting. I've never thought about that question. Um, but I do think it was interesting that you were saying, like, the analogy of learning to fly. And it makes sense that, like, eventually the way that a seven is eventually going to realize and learn that they don't know how to fly either a, when they jump off the building and they really get hurt. Mm -hmm. And then there's like, it's undeniable because you're, you know, basically in a neck down cast (laughs) or that's, that's just it. It's like, until you're in that place, you're like, Oh, I really can't fly. And then it's just like devastating. So it seems leading up to that analogy of, of all those things, Help give clarity as to like how you could hopefully at some point end up at that spot to where you don't have any other way of like reframing, which is a really, really, man, it's a really great place to be, but it, man, it also really sucks at the same time. Two sides to everything, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe that thinking repressed people are, are, I'll say it this way. I believe that non-dominant thinking people Lack imagination. Now, I'm not saying they lack creativity because I'm not sure there's a number on the Enneagram that I think has the potential for more creativity than fours do. But I do think uh, we it requires thinking to have imagination. You, you know what f- term I think I like better? What? Is that it's repressed. 
It's not lacking. Right. True. With everything else. Yeah. It's just like it's repressed. There. Yeah. It's just repressed and hasn't been used because the other things have been dominant. Exactly. And and thank you for that. And one thing I, I haven't said in a while I probably should say is that repression is subconscious and suppression is conscious. And I think we have to keep in mind that this idea that we somehow decided not to use all three is just not what happened. That's not what happened. For the two of you, I would start by saying that one of the things that I admire the most about you is that um, my experience is that complexity in families is common and being willing to talk about it is uncommon. And one of the reasons I value the Enneagram so much is because I think it helps us talk about complexity in relationships across the board because somehow this number piece makes things seem less like they're about a flaw in ourselves. But I don't want to continue that conversation, Noel, until you and I talk for a minute about the fact that every four feels or thinks that they are somehow flawed, that there is a flaw that they just have to carry with them. Uh, when I first learned about the Enneagram through Brad, who brought it to me, I wasn't against it or I wasn't pushing back on it at all. I got really excited when I found out it was a four, though, and that it was the most uncommon number. Of course. <laughs> Which is proof that you're a four. <laughs> I know. I know there's that thing. There's so few of me. <laughs> I know there's that thing where a lot of people will say, you know, when you found your number, when you feel like kind of squeamish. And I'm like, oh, no, I love that I'm a four. Right. <laughs> it's great. But the thing that really got to me was that piece because I was like, there's never been, or I have never experienced language that described how I have felt since I was a little girl, as long as I can remember. And my mother has been learning about the Enneagram too. She's an eight. Um, when she, I know <laughs> that was, that was tricky, but, um, it's great now learning she, opportunity for oh, everybody. Absolutely. It has been really good for us. But when she learned about fours, she was just like, Oh my gosh, this is you. And, um, yeah, I have felt that for as long as I could remember. And I can say this with full confidence. And if my parents were sitting in this room right now, they would absolutely agree. I was a really good kid, like a really, really good kid. I have this story that I'll keep really brief, but I wasn't allowed to watch MTV when I was younger. I was at my neighbor's house and she had MTV on and Madonna was on and I sat there and watched it. I went home wrote a note to my dad confessing that I had watched MTV, made a sad face with tears and dropped it over the banister of, of my stairs. Cause I was so ashamed. My, so my dad could see it and my parents tell the story now, like they were trying not to laugh in front of me, but that, that is me in a nutshell. I was a really, really good kid, but I always felt like less than, or mm -hmm. I always felt like I should be this. I should 
look like this. I should be better at this. I should so competitive with myself. Um, I did art growing up. I went to art school. There was no amount of compliments that would ever make me feel like what I did was good or was remotely close to what I thought I should be. And that goes for um, being a wife, for being a friend, for being a mother, for all of it. Um, And then now, you know, studying the Enneagram and learning more about who I am, I'm able to embrace that part of who I am and not feel so bad about it or feel so flawed. I, you know, I try to not, I try to not uh, sit in that space too, too long. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's sad. I cry. I mean, I cried and I, I actually hate crying. I don't like Mm -hmm. to show emotion that way. It makes me very, very uncomfortable. But when I learned about that part, I I cried. I I grieved for myself a little bit. And I think that was really good. Yeah. I think so too. Grieving anytime along the way is really good. Yeah. Because really life presents us with so much to grieve, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. You said that there were no amount of compliments or... And now you've learned about that. Mm -hmm. How can someone compliment four or connect with four and have that be heard? I don't think there's anything that somebody else could do besides being honest. Like I can smell fluff from a mile away. Like don't try to, don't try to give me a compliment that isn't, that you don't really mean. I think it's more about me or other fours learning to accept it and just say, thank you. And not say, oh, thank you, but, or, oh, thanks, but you should have seen it before, or you should mm-hmm. see what I want to do, or kind of add on to it, but just to learn how to receive that um, and kind of let that, the truth of what other people see you as kind of wash over you and just let that stay. I'd like to ask you a question about that, because my sense with fours is that they are to the person longing to be heard and known and understood. Do those three things, from your perspective, include Brad knowing about this flaw that you think you have and honoring that, or... Brad saying things like everybody's flawed, everybody has a flaw, or Brad saying things like, that's not true. I don't see it. I don't know it. Like what, what if you need to be known genuinely Mm -hmm. as you are and you're carrying the reality that you feel flawed what do you need from other people in relationship in terms of honoring that? To not fix it, to not try to fix the situation. Also not let me, it's hard, right? It's complicated. Like sure. I think like most things with fours, but when Brad comes and tries to sit down and come up with a plan and fix everything, he's actually doing something good. Right. And I can see that. But I also get frustrated, like, this is not what I need. But as we've grown and he's learned more about who I am, 
when he just sits there and validates, that's the that's when I feel most known. And he'll kind of let that linger long enough. And then he'll follow up when I'm in a better space. Like, hey, let's, let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about this. And actually, then he brings up the plan. Mm-hmm. Like, let's come up with a plan of, you know, we were just having a conversation about work. Um, and he's extremely good at his job. I'm really successful at mine, but don't feel extremely good at it. So on the drive up here, we were actually having a conversation about work and he will, he did that. He will validate how I feel, let that sit for a little bit. And then kind of, he brought up like, let's, let's come up with a plan on how you can get to this place that you want to be in your job. He doesn't give me a long list of things I should do. Mm -hmm. Maybe years ago, that would have been the case, but he knows better enough to not do that anymore. And then him and I can have like a conversation together. He's not talking at me. He's not trying to fix it. So I think the short answer is validate it. And then when the person or when the four is in a healthier space, then try to revisit the conversation and come up with a plan or because I would, because I would say the, the reason that that wor- that works for you so well is because you would feel very phony if you just took some advice that some ding dong sitting next to you says, just do it like this because this is how I would do it, and it's really easy for you to do that. Would feel like that's not how I would do that at all. So I'm certainly not going to do that. I think you feeling like you need to have that space that it's like it feels you. But feels the hard, like you. And the hard part about that is because I'm doing repressed. Right. It's hard for me to figure out what to do. <laughs> right. And what to do next. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, I hard. don't want to sit in it, but then I'm doing repressed and I'm like, Ooh, it's going to take a lot of emotional energy to get out of this place mm-hmm. and onto the next. But I think that's just part of growing. Brad, where'd you learn to do that? One day did you think, I need a little space between receiving her feelings and then sharing what I think might be helpful and then offering to help. Was that intuitive? Did something shift in your life together where you kind of thought that's what we need to do? Where'd you get that? I'd say it was was two things, particularly maybe a third, but really two things. One was, I mean, I'd be remiss if not saying it, like it was a lot of it was learning the Enneagram. I've just dove so deep into it right? and I've consumed and thought and felt so much of that. Um, but we all know that that's just one side to the coin. Um, honestly, it's like also doing a lot of therapy. There you go. I mean, it's been almost exclusively that I remember we were seeing a, a therapist in Austin And it was, I think it was, I think maybe November of 18 when we were at that around the same time that we came to this workshop here and we had been seeing a therapist, um, a few therapists over years for nothing else that we were very seasoned in Mm -hmm. therapy, but had been with this one therapist. It shows. Well, thank you. We've, we've done it a lot. And I remember sitting with this gentleman and we had to go through, um, and by we, I mean, I had to sit there and be absolutely quiet. 
I wasn't allowed to say anything. And we, for an, about an hour and a half, Noel had to sit there and talk about all the ways in the last 10 years of marriage, maybe no longer than that, was 12 years of marriage of how I had damaged our relationship. And I wasn't allowed to say anything. I wasn't allowed to rebuttal. I wasn't allowed to defend. I wasn't allowed to say, but this is the reason why and explain my situation. I had to sit there and absorb. And then we didn't go back to that, to another session for two weeks and we weren't allowed to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So I had to allow it to absorb. Mm -hmm. And it was a level of fresh hell right there. Yes, it is. It was, it was very, very hard, but I can tell you right now without any doubt in my mind that two things happened. One, it changed my life. Yep. And two, I, you hear about when people save, like whether for whatever spiritual reasons they're referring to in that situation, I felt God like literally change me. And it was a two part. I mean, it was, it was a dance. Like I felt that happen, but I had to be willing to do it. Right. And, and then from that moment, it was like, okay, this is, she, she has, I have, I can't defend it because I knew it was true. Right. Because I'm very aware. And so I, every moment that she talked about of this exact instance, when you said this at this parking lot in this year with these people around us, I knew exactly, there was no defending. Mm-hmm. And so I, I knew it was all true and I couldn't defend it. And I knew that in a therapy session that that's where my thinking came in is like, it'll be absolutely frivolous to defend this because I know it's true. I'd be lying. Mm-hmm. And so it was just one of those moments where it was kind of a perfect storm of all the things that needed to happen. And then I chose to do it and I, I choose, it's a conscious action, but it's not a thinking action because I was feeling what I I had to absorb these feelings of how she felt and what it had done to our relationship. And so I, I mean, how it was, how it's continued to be executed. It's a lot of conscious thought mixed in with like, remember how you felt and feel how you felt at that time and feel how she was telling you she felt. And it's just, there's no other way to describe it. It's just, it's a lot of work. I of course have a lot of questions around that, but I'm just going to ask two. Did you run out of reframing? Did that start with, you reframing the things she said, and then because it was a two-week period, did did you end up not being able to fool yourself anymore? I think it was during the midst of a of a season in our family's life where I we were already walking through a ton of really really cha- challenging things in our life, and so the reframe had ended probably about. Uh, I'd say probably about a year before we had had a lot of things happen in our life with trauma and with our family. And I just, it was impossible to reframe. And so this was like chapter three, but like, instead of focusing on this dynamic of our family, it was between me and her. And so I was like, although I didn't really have a ton of knowledge about reframing yet, Mm -hmm. um, it was right around that time. And then one of the reasons that I wasn't really able to reframe Um, I don't think I thought about it in that context in that moment. Mm -hmm. I just knew something was happening and I felt something in me changing. And then it was when we were here for that 
workshop. And I remember, I remember looking up at you and raising my hand and asking a question and saying, is there any way for a seven? Cause I knew something was happening. Is there any way for somebody like myself to get to that other side without like, what's the, what's the quick way? It was, it was actually very much of a three question, but it was like for different reasons for me. And I remember you looking at me and basically saying like, no, you basically just have to give yourself to it. You have to be swallowed by it. And this thing that you can't reframe, you're never going to be able to reframe it. You just have to allow yourself to drown and be swallowed by it. And I was like, oh, crap. But I knew that it was true because yeah. I was already feeling that. You know when it's true. You mm-hmm. know when it's true, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you what I'd like to do, and I may fail. In fact, I think chances are good, but I want you to know where my heart is. We don't learn from our successes anyway. There you go. That, that, that's teaching from somewhere familiar. Mm-hmm. I experienced a different and very memorable kind of hospitality in your home with you two and some other friends who we were doing a panel with and... I'd like to be able to set up that kind of hospitality for Brad and Noel to be able to talk about building a family and building a family in real time with the real issues that so many people are asking questions about and the real challenges that so many families are living with. And I am grateful for the opportunity for us to talk some about your experience with a failed match and adoption. And I've had the honor and the privilege of walking a little bit of that journey with the two of you. And I I find that you offer hospitality to everybody that matters to you. And I'm guessing that part of the reason your relationship is working in the ways that it is is because you also offer that hospitality to one another. I think the best way for us to start would be for you to introduce your family to us, and then maybe we can talk about some of the things you've learned and some of the tools that you have to share with other folks. And of course I won't be able to be quiet and you know, I'll be in all that. We wouldn't want you to be, do you want to take the lead on that? Um, I'll let you do the introduction. So Noel and I've been married for 15 years, 14, 14, about to be 15, <laughs> um, together for 15 years. Um, we've got, um, three kids, two biological, one adopted. Um, we had our son cash first, um, Cash is 13, uh, about to be, he'll be 14 next year. Um, we had him first. Speaking of when you were talking about sevens and fours earlier about this idea of like, we want it when we want it and we don't want to wait. Noel and I were met, dating, engaged, married in eight months and met, dating, engaged, married, pregnant in 11 months. And so... Our- wow. Yeah. You were on his train for a long time, <laughs> weren't you? 
we're going to do this now. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. Met Denny Engage, married, pregnant, moving from New York City to Austin in like a year. Oh, Something like that. Yeah. And so like we Aren't you proud of yourself? It's I like am. We, uh, yeah. I did, did that. We did a good job. That's a girl. Good story. We've had people tell us that uh, the odds only know one speed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um we had cash when we moved to Austin. He's fantastic. He's uh autistic and is I think I mentioned this. I probably mentioned it to people all the time, but around the time that we realized that he was on the spectrum, cash is like the most lovable kid you've ever met. Like he is like, he's still as a 14 year old boy, will go up to people and just random. If you met you right now, he'd be asking you for a hug. He all, he just loves hugs. And, um, we say that cash vomits love on the world, <laughs> um, because he does a lot of sensory space issues. And so he's, he's given love all the time. It's just, he's throwing it up on you. And that is like I, this I relate to that. Term, term of endearment, you know? Um, we had him first around three years later. Uh, we had our daughter, uh, Maddie Rose. She is 10, about to be 11. Um, she is a, a pistol and is just like, she's just been a joy in every capacity. She knows what she wants and um, and she's driven and she's just wonderful. She's hilarious. I think the thing I love about her the most is that she's, has a really, really good sense of comedic timing. It's yeah. like, it's really underspoken, but it's like, she like gets stuff and yeah. that's just really wonderful. And around when she was like three, three, we adopted our eldest son from Ethiopia when he was seven. Um, so older kid and had gone through international adoption and that, you know, the tricky turmoil waters of that. And we, I'm trying to think that was 2016, 2017. No, he came home in 2012. Sorry. sorry. 2012 uh, numbers. Yeah. He came home in 2012 and was with us in our home for about four years. And there's a lot of complexities and challenges with that. Um, that comes along with a adoption, B international adoption, three, transracial international adoption there's just layer after layer after layer and perhaps well-intentioned a little bit of naivety on our parts uh maybe in uh, a space that is still finding its sea legs in international adoption um people are learning and he's older than cash yeah he is older than cash was the other the other thing that well, I'm sorry. Out of birth order yeah. was the other thing that, um, yeah, and when we were doing, when we were going through the process and as Brad said, we were young with rose colored glasses on mm-hmm. and, um, we just felt like cash is autistic. He doesn't have an awareness. So it'll be fine mm-hmm. if we adopt an older child, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, Despite all of the literature from yeah. Karen, Karen Purvis and everybody else who tells you <laughs> that's probably not the best idea. Yeah. That was maybe a, a, a big learning curve for us that uh, we can, with humility now, understand the, why they say that. You know, it's interesting, though. Um, I think fours and sevens are moved by need. Mm. Emotionally. Affected is what I mean when I say moved for different reasons. Mm. I, I, I think sevens intuitively want to fix pain. And I think 
sevens are intuitive in caring for somebody who's an underdog or who has obvious need. Is there a level of want to prove people wrong for you? I would have never put it on a label like that, but I, I would, I mean, I guess you can always look back and see how that could be. And I mean, I'm sure there's some parts of that where it's like, Oh, well, like our story will be different. Exactly. Like every, everything's, everything says uh, that the numbers say that, and people are telling us that, but like, we're different. We got that. We got this figured out. That's what I mean. Not, not voicing it, not saying, you know what, well, we're going to prove it wrong, but just exactly what you said. Uh, We can handle this. Our story is not their story. In connection to what I was saying is, I think you all also think when you see somebody in need, your story doesn't have to be your story. It can be this story. Mm -hmm. Together, we can have this story. You try to reframe it for them. Yes. The other thing I want to put on the table as we continue the conversation is that I think Joe and I will probably say till the day we stop doing ministry or die that the number one question we are still asked individually and collectively more than any other question is how do you discern correctly what you're supposed to do? How in the world do you know? And I think there has been a lot of good intention in many situations of people suggesting that you're called to do something that might not be yours to do. Having experienced your hospitality, I can imagine thinking that your home is the perfect home for a child who needs a home. Mm -hmm. And that's putting a call on you or even putting a call in the middle of the room and because there are so many children in the world who need a home, hoping that you'll pick it up. It's a very tricky thing from every perspective, and I'm not being critical of anybody. I just want to say I don't think call is cut and dried. I think it's very tricky, and I think it's it's just hard for everybody involved to know What's their own to do, much less what somebody else's to do. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And as Karen Purvis once said, just because you got an extra seat in your minivan just doesn't mean you're supposed to fill it. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes it takes, um, you know, we have a, a therapist we used to see in Austin um, who'd said, there's no such thing as a silver bullet in life. The only thing that comes close to a silver bullet is time and the passage of it and the learning from it. Right. And I couldn't agree more of that thing being placed in the middle and saying like, well, you can pick it up. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. And if you do pick it up, that's okay. I would say, and this kind of, kind of like leads that conversation. And as part of another is that that kind of dualistic thinking, uh, is I think is at least what I've learned is it gets us into a little bit of trouble. Um, life's way, 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 way more gray than that. And we don't want to think that because 50-50 50-50 odds are pretty pretty dang good. But when something's much more gray, you, A, you have to have a lot more faith, or you have to be able to say, like, I may be walking away from something I could do. And there's just, there's a lot of complexity in it. And complexity is, like... 
People don't have time for it. Yeah. People just don't have time for it. Mm. All right, Noel, you want to kind of speak into this whole family that you all have created and sure from your perspective? Yeah. Um, I think, well, I don't think that actually doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) Based on what I feel. I felt. (laughs) So I, I, and I don't want to go take too much time to go into the background, but I was one of three and we were 10 years apart. So I kind of felt like an only child growing up. Right. Um, my older brother died when I was 14 from a heroin overdose. I have a lot of trauma just from having a brother who is an addict and there's a bunch of other stuff kind of tossed in there. And so when I got married and wanted to build a family, I wanted a good bit of children. (laughs) Yes. I had the number four in my head and Brad too comes from a big family and we had, uh, cash and honestly, because of how quickly we got together and married and pregnant. We were picking up on his disabilities when he was pretty young, but had our daughter when he was just before he turned three and kind of felt like, well, let's just keep going and felt like we wanted to grow our family through adoption. There's actually, I'm going to screw up this number, but I think Six of our nieces and nephews are adopted. We have lots of beautiful stories of adoption in our in our life. I hope nobody hears us thinking that we're saying it's a negative thing at all when they hear this. But it's complex. It's complex. It's very complex. Thank you. That is a good way to put it. It's just very complex. And, and let me just good. say, yeah, uh, it's complex when everything works mm-hmm. w- with no trauma. Yeah, it's just a complex thing. Yes, and I'm. You know, I'm an adopted child, Mm -hmm. so I couldn't be more thankful than I am for adoption. And I was adopted by a highly evolved couple who had two biological children who were 15 and 18. Mm -hmm. So I'm in that same, except I'm 15 years younger. Mm -hmm. And it's still complex. Yeah, That doesn't mean don't do it. It means adopt with your eyes open. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to be preachy. I think people have to adopt with their eyes open. And I think there has to be a great deal of integrity in the behavior and actions of people who are representing and presenting children for adoption. Mm-hmm. And... um There's an awful lot of need in the world. And really good human beings want to meet that need. The other thing I want to say, because I don't want our conversation going forward to be limited to families with an adopted child. Mm -hmm. So I just also want to say that I think there there are more family arrangements that are different and unique than we would have ever dreamed 50 years ago. Yeah. And they're all complex. Joel and Whitney have a very unique family of six, and it's complex. Joe and I have our own complexities. It's just not a, it's not the good old days, which probably weren't the good old days. Mm. And so I don't want this to sound like a conversation as we move forward that has to do with 
being limited to adopting a child. No, I completely agree. I mean, my older brother was my biological brother and it was, it was heartbreaking. Anyway, so we wanted to grow our family through adoption and we started that process. Um, and when we brought home our older son, we quickly, maybe a year after he was home, began the process of domestic adoption also, because I wanted to get to that magical number of four. (laughs) Um, and, uh, we had many birth mothers, you know, look at our profile, but we had actually been chosen by a birth mother, met her. Um, I'm sure you know where the story is going. Brad and I were on our, they call it a baby moon. We got the phone call that she was in labor and everything kind of went radio silent and she decided to keep her baby. I also, the, the term failed adoption or failed match or whatever kind of, kind of, kind of bugs me a little bit now on the other side of that. Um, because it was her baby, (laughs) it was her baby and she chose to keep her baby. And I was utterly heartbroken from the expectation and the loss of what I wanted, but it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine to, it wasn't mine. It was hers that she, if she had, she would have given up that, but that was hers and it wasn't mine. So I still go, sorry. Go well, ahead. I just want to say that failed adoption match is general language, not ours. Yes. Right. So I, oh, just yeah. want, I want everybody to hear that that is a technical term that is, in the world, it's not anything that is part of your story or my understanding. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm, yeah, I, I, uh, was, we had heard a story recently that was similar and I mentioned that to Brad. I wonder if there's different language mm-hmm. for this. Um, so yes, it's not just here. Uh, but Brad said, I don't think I've ever heard you cry like that when he, when I fell apart from that in the midst of that, it was a it was a groaning. That yeah, I understand now. I, I you hear the Psalms and Job talk about that. It's it was a groaning. Yeah, from deep good. within. Um. So it was just a real loss of an expectation that I had, and and in in the midst of that, our older adopted son, it it was the farthest thing from easy. Looking back now, I can honestly say that I think I was trying to fix something that was very broken Mm -hmm. and feeling like I can stick a baby in this hole and it's going to make it this this hole that is so painful and, you know, gaping open and we can get a baby and it's going to make everything better. And it, that was really what I think my groaning was. Um, Losing the hope of it being better. I think just grieving the loss of the family I thought I was going to have because it was already deteriorating before my eyes that the family that we had was already falling apart and thinking that this other adoption would fix that was really just ripping a bandaid off of the fact that like what I had wanted was just deteriorating and it was really hard. I'm so thankful to hear you talking about grieving. Mm -hmm. And so what I'd like to put, in the conversation is that I think culturally we've lost the art of grieving. I don't think we know how. I think everything is a setup 
so that we won't grieve. I think we've bought into that we'll just do the next thing and the next thing and then we don't have to grieve. And most importantly, I think we don't know how to grieve. And so I think along with all the things that are being taught, grieving is going to have to be taught somewhere because it's not, it's, it's, you just don't see it anywhere. And I'm a pastor's wife. I go to a lot of funerals. And I see sadness, but I don't see grieving. Mm. And you two, as sevens, because reframing comes so naturally to you, um, part of Joel's story, his big story, is that life got to be extraordinarily complex because he came upon the first thing that he couldn't reframe. And then that was like this pit of all the things that he hadn't grieved. And he was supposed to have the tools as a young man to do it all at one time. And you don't have them. At the same time, Joe and I were counseling to older men than Joel who were sevens, who also had never grieved, reframed everything, and were faced with grief for the first time. So there's, there's a lot here that we could talk about. The thing I want us to land on is that I don't think you can love the child that you have regardless of the circumstances or the spouse that you have or the next-door neighbor that you have. I, I don't think you can love other people beyond the expectation that you had for the relationship until you've grieved what you don't have. I just don't think you can do it. And I think one of the most helpful things I've been able to say to parents of LGBTQIA Mm -hmm. children is you have to grieve the child that you don't have before you're going to be able to love the child that you do have. Mm And I would guess that y'all had to do that some with cash. It's like you don't Mm -hmm. expect to have a child who is autistic. And that's not negating any of the gifts that cash brings to your world or to the greater world. It's just that's not the child that you thought you were going to have. And that comes with a set of responsibilities. And in a world that says grieving is never necessary, and for people who can reframe so quickly... And, Noel, for people who can hold pain without needing to let go of it, it just adds to the complexity of everything that we're talking about. Your cup's just overflowing at all time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whether you're doing anything about it on my end or you're refilling it, you know, on hers. Uh, I mean, example, when we had cash, it was like, I've never once, and I can truly say this, I've never been like, I've never grieved that he was autistic for the sake of being autistic because that's illogical to me. Like he was born the way he is and God loves him and that's the way it is. I have grieved and why it took me so long because being a father at the beginning was very challenging for me. Very, very challenging. The first six months to a year was like, man, I was just a bumbling fool. And Looking back on it now, I could see that the thing that I was grieving the most is that like, because I'm in such intimate relationship with him and I tell people this now, like, you know, I love hanging out with my buddies. You know, when you came down a few weekends ago, love doing that. My buddy's with me now. Even my brother, like I love hanging out with those guys and girls, but I would always choose cash. Always. I'd always choose him first. And so I know him so well and the, the grieve and loss that like, because of his autism and because of some of the things that make him quirky, um, maybe sensory unawareness or social unawareness that like, 
I know that they're never malicious or any bad thing. And I grieve the fact that like people will look at him Mm -hmm. and see him differently and they won't really understand or take the time to be in relationship with him. And that's the part that I am grieving the most. Yeah. So there's one pattern. Um, and only one and for all of life. And that pattern is living, dying, rising. And it repeats itself over and over and over and over again. And we are influenced in the West with living, 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 or this um, fascination with tragic so that we'll look at that for a little bit and then it's living, 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 living. And for the pattern to repeat itself, it has to complete itself, right? So probably in relationship to cash, there's been a 100,000 moments of living, dying, rising, where you're living life, somebody doesn't understand cash, it breaks your heart, and there's some dying in that, and then cash. I found him to have your gift of hospitality. (laughs) Then cash makes space for you, and it's rising, Mm -hmm. and then it happens again and again and again. And with Joel and his son, it's like, man, things are good today. And then tomorrow it's, ah, there's such a disconnect here. And then there's the next morning, and his son is approaching him in a way that works right. It's the pattern for everything. He gave me a nickname this past week, the Jolster. He asked if that one was good. Do you say you'd take it? Of course. Yeah. That's that's classic. (laughs) Yeah. That's perfect. (laughs) Done. And that took two years, three years. Three Three years. Mm. Three years. So. uh, And he's done as much work as I have on this relationship. He's really trying. The kid's six. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how we intuitively want to relate to one another. If we can just figure out how. Right. I talked a little bit earlier about needing tools to get from point A to point B or to, you know, I tell everybody, I think everybody needs a spiritual director and everybody needs a therapist. And I'm quite sure I'm right about that, <laughs> which I, I don't know if that's arrogant or just honest, but I, I would have, I affirm that. I'm, I'm quite sure about that. I think I am to a place in life where if I'm not tired, I'm not terribly judgmental. When I get tired, I just get bitchy and judgmental, right? (laughs) But uh, when I'm not, uh, and when I'm doing some self-care and I'm I'm really into my practice, whatever it is at the time, what I'm beginning to feel instead of disgust or judgment or any of that is if only they had some tools. If only they knew what to do. Those are good folks over there. And they are not doing well, and it's because they don't know what to do. So um, if you guys would just set the conversation with a container that has the context 
of the trauma that you all have and are experiencing? And then would you share with the people who listen to this podcast what you think two or three or four tools are that you've learned on the journey that are really helpful to you that you think might be helpful to other people. And if they're number specific, then label them as number specific. So so it would be, I think this works for a seven, but it doesn't work for Noel, right? Are we good on what I'd love for you to. Okay. Do you want me to do the brief container? Okay. Fill the bowl, babe. Fill the bowl. So, um, briefly we brought a very wounded child into our home and a lot of hurt happened in our home because of his trauma. Um, and we, we tried to do it ourselves for four years. Um, and too much happened that wasn't possible anymore. And we needed help. He is not living with us. He is somewhere where he's getting help. Um, Brad and I have very different relationships with him. Um, and then we are currently just parenting our two children at home who have a lot of trauma also. So we're kind of kind of collateral damage, collateral damage. Mm -hmm. Um, Brad and I are trauma. There's just a lot of trauma in the house. Um, and then I would say tools that have helped, um, obviously therapy, all of us are in it weekly. I kind of roll my eyes at people that go like once a month. Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to get done yeah, one no hour kidding. once a month? I, as being somebody who's doing repressed, I never miss my therapy yeah. session. Yeah. It is on my calendar. It is a part of just being healthy. So therapy, uh, we all had to get real vulnerable. So vulnerability, which as a four is really hard for me. Um, it's actually a lot easier for Brad as a seven to be vulnerable. I don't know if that's typical for sevens, but he is really vulnerable. It's harder for me. Um, and then we, we shrunk our world. Mm-hmm. We took our world where, um, you experienced our hospitality and we used to do that with anyone and everyone cause we loved it. But when we were in a season and we feel like we're kind of coming out of it of just, a, you know, we were just bleeding everywhere <laughs> for a long time and we're kind of coming, we got some casts on, we're able to walk again. We're opening that back up. But in the midst of that real hard time, we just shrunk our world and we just kept people close that we could trust that we knew loved us unconditionally and ultimately loved our children. Um, and then the other tools, <laughs> I don't know, this isn't really a tool and maybe this won't make sense, but I had to learn. And as a four, which is really hard parenting a child who, um, he has reactive attachment disorder and um, did not attach to me, and full transparency, I didn't to him. Um, he does thankfully have an attachment with Brad. So for somebody who's a four who lives out of my emotions, not having those feelings mm-hmm. 
and feeling like I was faking it every mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was dying inside. That sounds dramatic because it is, but that's the best way to describe it. I, and as a woman. Oh, I felt like I was It's just, a different oh. thing too as a woman. Like I should be able yes. to do this as a woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so something that has taken me a long time and a ton of work was I love him in action because love is feeling and it's action. So I, to, to this day, I love him showing up as much as I can and loving him advocating and other details, action oriented details is how I live out love for him. Even though I don't have the feelings, I know that could be kind of complicated. So maybe just having the freedom or learning how to have the freedom within messy trauma to kind of rewrite the script of how things look. Mm -hmm. So in a family, how we think it's supposed to look, Mm -hmm. having the freedom to be like, we kind of need to scrap this and rewrite it and learn our new roles and learn that it's messy. And this person's on this spot and this person's on a totally different spot. Um, And just kind of embracing it. Can't give what you don't have. You can't. You can't. And And you you can't fake it if you're a four, and nobody can give it regardless of what number but, you are. But like society, and being okay with it, like you said, society, like, social media, yeah. all the crap we're fed tells us otherwise. Yep, Christmas all letters. In my generation, it was Christmas letters. It tells you otherwise that you have to be, and in the adoption world, yeah, it has yeah. to look like this. And when you don't, and I know countless people have struggled with the similar things. It is. Double crushing. I don't even think that's right grammar. Um, So I know that's not actually a tool, but maybe just that example Mm could help somebody. But I would say shrinking the world, therapy, bringing safe people around. Well, that example is wisdom. Mm -hmm. And I think wisdom is always a tool. And you don't get there with information. Information is not knowledge, and knowledge is not wisdom. Mm -hmm. And you've lived it, and you have wisdom. And people who know a little bit about the Enneagram would think that you were the one who could attach and be in the place where all that was working and that Brad would be the one who would struggle. And then that's another thing that you question about, Mm -hmm. right? It's just a lot. It's a... Nailed it. I would say in addition to that, the things that go in the bowl... Just knowing that when he came into our family, um, the fact that I had this initial connection for him, Noelle said something earlier about like just allowing things to be. Someone once told us that you really want to be in the same book, but if you're not on the same page of the same chapter, that's okay. You're at least you're in the same book. Um, and that's sometimes that's perfectly fine. You know, sometimes you get on the same chapter. Sometimes you get on the same paragraph. And man, by a miracle, maybe you're on the exact same word. And if that's the way it ends up, then that's great. But if not, just stay in the same book. It's very interesting that you're saying that because um, I love the book analogy because adoption is like getting a book with the first few chapters missing. Mm-hmm. And it's like that for the adoptee. And for the adoptive family, it's like you're starting on chapter four and you don't know what led up to there. Neither one of you know often 
sometimes the adoptee can find out. Yeah, our adopted son, when he came into our family, I'm sure to whatever capacity he could, knowing that, you know, his prefrontal cortex was just scrambled eggs, that, you know, that he thought that it was going to be this like magical relationship um, with his newly adopted mom. And, you know, all of his, the majority of his trauma coming from women in the past. And so, mm-hmm. you know, coming into this space and then not seeing that, um, is you know, like you said, for the adoptee and the adopting. Um, so I would say like, you know, those things all being in there, um, kind of jumbled up in this bowl. And then me having to continue to try to figure out this dynamic of, uh, he and I having a connection and, what does that connection look like? And when you have you know, a reactive attachment disorder, you know, I, listen, I'm not a therapist. I'm, you know, I've been through a lot of therapy, but I don't know exactly how exact every minute detail of rad works. But I also know that like, just, you don't really separate rad person to person. Now his reactive attachment disorder might've been really obvious with my wife and mine just in a much more subtle um, way. So there's a lot of like grieving from that. And I would say tools in which we've, that I've had to kind of try to bring to the table. Um, I guess I can put a label on it, but like humility, Mm -hmm. um, it is really, really challenging to practice real humility. I can look back now and see that my wife had, you know, a lot of markers and a lot of intuition. You, you said a lot of people come to you and ask about discernment a lot. And I believe that she has the gift of discernment. And for many years, like, and I'll speak directly to husbands, husbands supporting your wives when they have, when they have these feelings, like we call it mama bear instincts. We call it mother's intuition. Whatever we want to put a name on it for is like listening, listening to your wife. She has this other perspective that is God given and is wise. And so for me, when I look back on like, that's a tool that I wish I had been pulling out of my tool belt. Cause it was there. I just wasn't pulling it out of the tool belt. And same gender couples. It could also be mm-hmm. in one person and not the other for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so you just need to listen for sure. Yeah. yeah. Listening to your significant other and saying you have something that I do not have. Um, at least in this moment, I would say that, Obviously I would echo a lot of therapy, um, and the willingness to do the work, not seeing the work as like some magical mm-hmm. thing. It's like, it is, it is a two part process. It is a dance. You have to be willing to do the work for me. It was when I couldn't reframe something anymore. I could easily like now that we're in a somewhat, you know, there's, we're still in trauma, but it's, you know, the waters are not you know, billowing and crashing. They're a little bit more neutral. I could choose to easily walk away and be like, okay, well, I've kind of gotten this figured out, Mm -hmm. but that wouldn't actually, it would come back. So again, when I got into the Enneagram, it was in therapy and all of these things that are called life is like, Oh, this is a shift for your life. This is who I am now. And it may have been who I was all along, but now I just have language. So therapy, listening to your spouse. I say that one many times. And, uh, and I would say just choosing to commit, um, and like stay with something like 
when we have continued to walk through this process um, and the trauma in our family and the trauma with him and just the trauma of life is not, not walking away because your first initial outcome is not, you know, what you think it's going to be that this is you know, the silver bullet this time. And so just staying with that. That's so helpful. I, I just want to speak to the last thing, and that is in my time of knowing the two of you, um, I've watched you be open to redefining what commitment means. Mm-hmm. And I think every family has to have the space to, to define commitment based on the reality of their experience and... I don't think anybody else can do that for them. I think the words commitment means can only come from within your family for your own circumstance. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think your time with us today is assurance that God is in all of this and that in real time you have a lot to offer others. And I can only imagine the wisdom you're going to have to offer other people as the years go by. I, you know, I have great affection for both of you and great respect. Thank you. Thank you, guys.